Have you ever been an eyewitness? An eyewitness that required you to give testimony about what you saw. I'm actually interested by this. How many of you have ever appeared in court and given testimony as something you saw? Anyone? Oh, man. Brad. Did the judge find you credible? Did, were you found credible? All right, all right, yes. Wouldn't you find Brad credible? I would. I would listen. I remember uh, I've never had to give testimony in court. I have elicited testimony in court. But I do remember once I was an eyewitness. I still remember I was biking up Dahlia Avenue, coming up to the corner of Matamidi Avenue. And as I was about to cross the street, I think I was biking up probably for a tennis practice in high school, I saw a car turning left onto Dahlia right in front of me. And suddenly, out of nowhere, a car came down Matamidi Avenue. And I mean, literally right in front of me. It was the grace of God that one of them didn't spin into me and take me out. And I remember sitting there and waiting, and the police came. And I'm pretty sure I gave a statement on what I saw. I was an eyewitness. And any of, of you who have been involved in the legal system in any way probably can guess. Eyewitness testimony is really important to our justice system. Juries really like eyewitness testimony. I was there and I saw it. And the jury looks at them and says, do I believe you? And they tend to give a lot of weight to eyewitness testimony. Okay. What about if you're an eyewitness and you're not believed? I just want you to imagine that for a minute. This actually is, is something that I have known to experience in, in my own household. I have a child who feels very deeply when this child's testimony is not believed. I hear, my sister doesn't believe me. Oh, it is offensive when you say, I'm telling you something. I'm communicating something to you, expecting it to be believed. And all I get is, I don't believe you. Now, I thought of this because we're here in Mark 16. We're about three Sundays, including this one, from being done with our study of the Gospel of Mark. And we talked last week about how interesting it was that Mark is focusing on the resurrection account of how shocked the women were when they got to the tomb and saw that it was empty. And it was a very interesting thing because, as we looked at last week, Mark wants us to be amazed. Thank you, Ben. He wants us to be astonished again. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did he really fizz physically become alive after he was killed and confirmed to be dead and buried? Because he wants you to believe. He wants you to embrace how completely extraordinary this claim is. And then believe it. And live like you believe it. But now this week, we're going to talk about the eyewitnesses. The people who had the privilege of seeing Jesus alive for the first time. Can you imagine what a privilege that would have been? You were the first one that Jesus showed up to after he was resurrected. Well, look at who that was. But with this privilege came also a very unique pain. 
that when the first eyewitnesses of Jesus went to tell Jesus' own followers, Mark records, their response was, sure, we believe you not. What an interesting thing. Mark last week tells us about how shocked and unexpected this was. How shocking and unexpected. And this week he's going to tell us that Jesus' closest friends on earth, when they heard that he had been seen alive, they said, we don't believe you. Is this the way that you would have told the resurrection story of Jesus? So what is the relevance of what Mark is telling us here in Mark chapter 16? about the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The title of the message this morning is The First Eyewitnesses of Resurrection. The First Eyewitnesses of Resurrection. And by God's grace, we will learn what we can take from the very first people who saw Jesus alive after his crucifixion. We're going to look at three aspects of this eyewitness testimony. We're first of all going to look at what I'm going to call the centrality of these eyewitnesses. Secondly, we'll look at the credibility of the eyewitnesses. Just like you would in a court of law as sitting on a jury, you'd listen to eyewitness testimony. You'd try to understand whether you were going to believe it and accept it to be true. And third, we will look at the confirmation of the eyewitnesses, the confirmation of the eyewitnesses. Let's start, first of all, with the centrality, the centrality of the eyewitnesses. Now, why does Mark hasten to add that Jesus was seen? Will you look with me in verse 9, if you have your Bible here this morning, Mark chapter 16 and verse number 9. And Scripture says, Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, that was on Sunday morning, it's why, in fact, we call Sunday the Lord's Day. Because this was the day that Jesus was resurrected. And so we honor it as being the Lord's day. The day of our meeting together as the family of Christ. Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils or demons. And she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country, or the countryside. And they went and told it unto the residue, or the rest of them, neither believed they them. So notice here the kind of evidence that is being presented. Now, I just need to give you a really quick primer on evidence law. There are two kinds of evidence in a trial. There is direct evidence, and there is circumstantial evidence. Here's what direct evidence is. It's, I saw it, therefore it's true. This would be the person who says, how do you know the light was red? Because I saw it, and I know what the color red looks like. It was red. That's direct evidence, very powerful evidence in a court. But do you know things can also be proven in a court by circumstantial evidence? Circumstantial evidence is not someone saying, I saw it. It's evidence that is from the circumstances. So, for example, no one can say, I saw the light was red. But do you know what they can say? 
Well, all the cars the other way were moving. So I infer from that 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 light was green, and therefore this light was red. Or another piece of circumstantial evidence would say, well, how, why do you think the light was red? Well, because all the other cars were stopped when that car went through. Well, does that mean for certain that it was red? I guess everyone could have been stopped at a green light. But it's pretty good circumstantial evidence that the light was red if everyone else was stopped. You see, you have direct evidence and you have circumstantial evidence. Now, so far, we've been dealing with circumstantial evidence. You say, what do you mean? Well, what would those women have been able to go run and tell the disciples of Jesus? Jesus has been resurrected. Prove it. Did you see him? Uh, well, no. Well, how do you know he was? Well, well, because the tomb was empty. His body wasn't there. Well, think about what that would lead someone to say. Well, they just stole him. They stole his body. That's why the tomb's empty. Okay, so circumstantial evidence, the tomb's empty. That helps. It gets you somewhere. What about the angel visitors? Well, that gets you somewhere, too. That gets, that gets you pretty far along. Oh, you were just hallucinating. Okay, when does the direct evidence show up? When Jesus appears. And someone who knew him before his death says, I saw him. He talked to me. Suddenly, we're in the realm of direct evidence. People are saying, I saw him for myself. Now, we need to see that this is so important because it's absolutely central to the gospel. It's central to the good news that we believe. Now, I'm just going to read for you from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to. I'll read it. But 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is explaining to the church at Corinth what the gospel is, the good news that he received and that he was telling them. He says, this is the gospel. In verse 3, he says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. So I didn't make this up. I heard this gospel and then I shared it with you. What's that gospel? How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. When you walked in here today, did you understand that Jesus dying for our sins according to the scriptures was part of the gospel? I think probably so, right? That's pretty central. Okay, what else does he say? And that he was buried. We talked about this two weeks ago. That's part of the gospel. That Jesus was buried, and every single gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, cover that he was buried. Okay, so good. So far, so good. What else? And, th and, and, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Do you believe that's part of the good news, the gospel? That Jesus rose again according to the scriptures? Sure. I think probably nearly every one of us here said, yeah, I understand that's part of the gospel. Okay, keep on going. And that he was seen. And that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter. Then of the twelve, after that he was seen of above or more than 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain under this president, but, but, but some are fallen asleep. They've died. So Jesus was seen personally by more than 500 people at one time. And Paul says you could go talk to most of them. They're still alive. Yes, some of them have died. He was writing this probably about 30 years after it happened. But he said, most of them, you can go talk to them. They tell you, they saw him. What else? After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. G Paul said, I saw Jesus. 
personally. Now, why is it part of the gospel that Jesus was seen? Because again, we're talking about direct evidence versus circumstantial evidence. What the early church went out to proclaim about who Jesus was was not, first of all, a set of doctrines, a set of theologies, a set of ideas. Hey, we, Jesus taught some really good things. Now, I say that because today, one of the ways that a modern culture, that is a, really a post-modern culture, which means you've got your truth, I've got my truth, we're all good. Whatever helps you get to sleep at night, you're good with, and I'm good with you. That's, that's basically our culture today. You believe what you want to believe. It's all good. In that postmodern culture, a lot of times what you hear about Jesus is kind of a pat on the head. He had some good things to say. We like that part about doing unto others as you would have them to do unto you. Good. Like that part. Oh, the part about him being really gentle and loving people who were left behind in society and serving other people, servant leadership. We're all about that. Good teacher. Oh, wait, are you saying he's the son of God? <laughs> no. No, 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 not that part. Are, are you saying you believed he, he was raised from the dead? No, 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 not that part either. I just kind of like some of the things he said. Do you know the Gospels take that away? They take that away. Because the early church went out preaching not, hey, Jesus had some really good ideas. You should listen to him and allow him to influence your moral actions. No. What they went out is they said, there's a true or false statement here. Jesus was risen from the dead, and we saw him with our own eyes. That was what they preached. In fact, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, it is recorded for us, and with great power gave the apostles witness, testimony, of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's what they went out preaching. He's alive. How do you know? That's an extraordinary claim. Because we saw him with our own eyes. That's why. And one of the most central things that grounds my faith in the credibility of their testimony is that every single one of these apostles were willing to die for what they saw. Now, it's been said before, and I've said it, and I'll say it again. There are people who will die for what they believe to be true. People fly planes into buildings and do suicide missions for what they believe to be true. I understand that. But show me a person who dies over something he knows to be false. Show me someone who will give the, what's most precious to them, their life, for a lie that they told, that they concocted. And when these eyewitnesses said, I saw Jesus with my own eyes, and then they proved it by dying for him, by saying, I am willing to die for the truth of what I saw, I find that to be pretty credible. I find that to be pretty credible direct evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is something ultimately for you to weigh and for all of us to weigh. But it is the message of the Christian faith that Jesus was seen and you could have talked to them about it and assessed their own credibility. So this is essential to the gospel that Jesus was seen, that there were eyewitnesses, that there was direct evidence. But it's also, I want to suggest to you, essential to Mark's gospel. And I, I want to jump into a subject that I, I can't pretend that you may not have heard of. In some of many modern scholars, Christian scholars, well-meaning people, don't believe that verse 9 and onward is actually in the Bible. It's actually a part of the text 
that we are to read and count as Scripture. Maybe you have a version of the Bible that kind of puts a footnote and said, these 12 verses aren't included in, in the oldest manuscripts. And I just want to address that straightforwardly because we should be serious about what's in God's Word. And we should be able to stand with the confidence that God actually breathed out this book. He actually spoke it through the mouths and the pens of the people who wrote it for the first time. So let's just deal with it right now for just a moment. Now, you may know this. I suspect most of you do. The Bible wasn't written in English. The Old Testament of the Bible was written originally in Hebrew. And the New Testament of the Bible was written in Greek. And the interesting thing today is that we don't have any of the original manuscripts that they wrote on with quill and ink. We don't have one of them. That is to say, no one has in any museum the actual papyrus that Mark wrote on with his pen. What do we have? We have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies that have been transcribed and passed down through time. Now, you shouldn't let this worry you about the credibility of Scripture. Actually, historically, you would find that this book is unique among any historical book in the kinds of proof and confirmation we have of the genuineness of what is provided here. Again, you could go back to the ancient, whether you're talking about the Iliad or the Odyssey or other historical books, they do not come even close to the validity or the, or the historical evidence of the accuracy of the text that we have here. But what's interesting is in that some of the very early manuscripts, those in the 300s AD, and I'm going to just hang with me here. We're given some history. In the 300 ADs, there are manuscripts, or two manuscripts in particular, that don't contain these last 12 verses, verse 9 through verse 20. And that has led many modern scholars to say, well, it must have been added after this particular text was written for the first time. It's not genuine. It's not valid. And in fact, many people that I trust and I appreciate very much for their heart for teaching the Bible don't preach on these verses because they say, I, I don't think they're part of the original text. Well, let's assess that for just a minute. There certainly is, like I said, ancient manuscripts that don't contain these verses. But at the same time, there's also evidence that this was part of the original text. And let me tell you why. There were church fathers in the 100s, okay, so about 200 years before those manuscripts. And they actually quote verses from Mark 16, 9 through 20. Now what does that tell you? It tells you that very early Christians in the 100s AD were actually quoting these verses as genuine. That's evidence. Circumstantial evidence, yes, but it's evidence. And so scholars go back and forth on whether they think these 12 verses are actually contained in those original writings. You say, well, Peter, how should we think about it? I'm not going to approach it, first of all, from a scholarly perspective. That's not my training. It's not my expertise. But I do want to approach it from a logical one. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that Mark's gospel ended with verse 8? Do you believe that when Mark sat down to record the account of what he calls the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, remember that's how the book starts, the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he chose to end with this, and they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed, neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. 
Mark's gospel ends with the women running from the tomb and not saying anything to anyone because they were terrified. And they don't have anything about Jesus being seen. Is that the gospel? Well, we just saw what the gospel was. Paul tells us what the gospel was. The gospel is that Jesus was seen. And all three other, the other three gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, all record Jesus not only dying, not only being buried, not only being resurrected, but being seen by eyewitnesses. And so my conclusion from that is that the gospel of Mark could not be the gospel, the good news, if it ended in verse 8 without Jesus being seen. And so logically, I don't believe that Mark's gospel ended here, that he ended with the women running from the tomb afraid. So that leaves only one other possibility. Was there another version that was destroyed and this one was substituted? This is false. It's not true. It was substituted in later. Well, let me just ask you this question logically. If you worship a God who went to the trouble of breathing out his word, of inspiring people to write his word, so that 2,000 years later you could read and you could believe it, do you think that God, who was powerful enough to inspire that word, would preserve it for you to be able to read and understand it? Do you think God would take steps to ensure that the words that you're reading are the words that he intended you to read? I'll tell you, I do. I look back to the Old Testament where it says, Forever, O God, your word is settled in heaven. And I see a God that if he is going to inspire his word to be written down, we'll be able to preserve it so that we will be able to profit from it. So that leads me to conclude that these 12 verses are intended to be in our Bibles, should be taken, should be studied, and should be referred to as God's inspired word. If you have any other questions about that, of course, I'm happy to talk to you about it more after. But this is the centrality of Mark's gospel, that he was seen of these eyewitnesses. Let's move quickly then, secondly, to the credibility of these eyewitnesses. The credibility of these eyewitnesses. Notice the first eyewitness that is provided here in verse 9. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils or demons. Think about that for a minute. We've seen Mary Magdalene before. She was one of the ones who stood near the cross and watched Jesus die. She was the one who came and saw where Jesus was buried. She went in the morning preparing these expensive spices to anoint the body of a dead man. She was going to honor him. She wasn't expecting him to be raised from the dead. And now she is the one who has the privilege of seeing Jesus for the very first time after he was resurrected. Now, you can read about this in more detail in John chapter 20 and verses 11 through 18. We won't turn there, but I'll just give it to you as a note. If you have curiosity about how Mary saw Jesus for the first time, you can read about it in John chapter 20. But I just want to pause here for a minute. Mark wants us to learn that the woman that Jesus appeared to first was the one who had seven demons. And he cured her. He cast those demons out. He gave her spiritual deliverance from the oppression of the devil. And I want you to pause on that. If you wanted your story to be believed, who would have been your eyewitness? 
Is it odd to you that he would have appeared to a woman who everyone knew had had this significant demonic spiritual influence in her life? Is that likely? Is it likely that he would have appeared and put in her mouth the one who people in the community might have said, eh, questionable past on that one. Not sure about the credibility there. Not sure if she can be believed. What an interesting thing that Jesus chose to appear to a woman with a questionable past and perhaps a challenging community reputation. Do you know I love this about Jesus? Do you know this has been Jesus' M.O. his entire time? Oh, what do, the, what do the religious elites want? What do the Pharisees expect? Well, I'm just going to go hang out with the leper. I'm going to go hang out with the, with, with the person who is the tax cheat and who wants to hear my message. And, and I find that so wonderful and so encouraging for any of you with paths that you know are pretty questionable with some reputation in the community that you're a little bit ashamed of, you look back to your past and you said, wow, I can't believe that Jesus appeared to me. I can't believe that Jesus entered into my life. Are you serious? You say, I identify with Mary Magdalene. I I'm in the Mary Magdalene club. Yeah, because we serve a God who loves the people who are down and out and on the, out uh, on the outside and on the fringes of society, and tends to appear to them before he appears to the people who have it all put together and are the ones who have all their business in order. I'm grateful for that, and we should see that as part of the wonderful confirmation of the character of Jesus. But what's interesting to me is that Mary Magdalene, her credibility was rejected. Notice, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene and she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept and they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believe not. I mean, can you imagine being Mary Magdalene? I saw him. I know who he is. He was the one who healed me. He was the one who gave me spiritual deliverance. He appeared to me. And the disciples say, okay, yeah, yep, sure. We don't believe you. I wonder what she would have felt in that moment. But I wonder what they would have felt too. We know that they were mourning and weeping. They were sad. They were still treating this like a funeral. Not only that, we learn from John chapter 20 that they were scared. When they met together as disciples after Jesus was resurrected, they closed the doors. They, they, they shut the doors. Why? Because they were scared of the very people who had arrested Jesus. And so they're scared, they're sad, and they hear this news that seems totally implausible to them, no matter what they had heard before he had died, and they just said, we don't believe you. Sorry. Wow. Now what else? Notice what Jesus, the other eyewitnesses, look at verse 12. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue, or the rest of them, neither believed they them. Now, who are these? Well, you can read about this in Luke chapter 24 and verse 13 through 35. I love this. Mark has just given you a little snippet. And other Gospels tell you what actually happened. These were two disciples who were leaving Jerusalem and going down the road to a small village called Emmaus. 
And suddenly Jesus appears to them and they didn't recognize him. And he is walking with them and he's telling them what happened in Jerusalem. And they're, and, and, and they're saying to him, you know, we thought this guy was the Messiah. He was the chosen one. And then suddenly he was killed. And now these women are telling us that there's an empty tomb. And, and they're just kind of thinking, we don't know what to believe. And you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, I love this. He says, oh fools. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You foolish ones. Oh, he must have said it with some tenderness in his voice. But he still said, you haven't believed yet, seriously? After everything that the Old Testament prophets have said about that, the fact that Jesus would be resurrected? What's interesting to me is that these two disciples then turn around and go back and they're going to tell the rest of the disciples, and they still get unbelief from them. Now, if you compare it to the other accounts, you'll see that there were seems to be peaks of belief and then of unbelief. Like, some of them were believing and some of them weren't. We know that Thomas was one of them that was not believing. He said, I'm not going to believe until I can put my hand into the side where the spear went in and when I can touch the prince in his hands and in his feet. And so there were undoubtedly some who may have accepted the testimony, some who didn't. But what Mark tells us is that, generally speaking, the residue, the rest of them, didn't believe even these two other eyewitnesses. Again, notice this, credibility. These are direct, this is direct evidence of eyewitnesses. And the response is, sorry, we don't believe you. And this, then, is what leads us directly to our third point here this morning, what I'll call the confirmation of the eyewitnesses. Notice verse 6, 14, I'm sorry. Verse 14. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven, that's the rest of the disciples, right, minus Judas, as they sat at meat, literally as they were reclining at the table, as people ate in that day and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. I just imagine this scene. The disciples are gathered together. Jesus shows up. And what does he do? He upbraids them. Now, if you believe that this is referring to hair, and that Jesus came in and did a really nice hair, new hairstyle for them, you're barking up the wrong tree, okay? You're, you're way off the mark. This is not about cosmetology. He upbraided them. That's an old word. The word upbraid literally means to rebuke. But it's not just any kind of rebuke. This same word Mark used to refer to the people who were reviling Jesus on the cross like really harshly coming at him. In, in other words, I think what Mark is trying to communicate is that Jesus did not speak to his disciples who were unbelieving. He didn't speak to them like some modern parents speak to little Johnny. Oh, little Johnny, I know you're tired. I know it's been a hard day. But oh, little Johnny, can you please modify your behavior a little bit? Mommy would really love it if you could correct and change this. No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus came at him. Like, like, maybe, like maybe a coach comes at his team once in a while. 
and says, hey, I got a word. It's not going to be an easy word. Doesn't that just say he got, he got angry? But could I say, would you understand what I mean if he said he chewed them out a little bit? He got on them a little bit? He rebuked them? This was an adult kind of rebuke, a grown-up kind of rebuke. Hey, why didn't you believe them? Why didn't you believe Mary Magdalene? Why didn't you believe those two on the road to Emmaus? He rebuked them. Notice what he did. For, with their unbelief and their hardness of heart. Their hardness of heart. These are the people who were Jesus' best friends on earth. And what Jesus says to them, the reason you didn't believe is because you had hard hearts. Now, I want to look at this from a couple perspectives before we close here today. Will you start with the perspective of those disciples themselves? Now, I would tend to get, cut them a break a little bit. They were really sad. They were really scared. They didn't know what to believe. No, Jesus says, the problem was you were hard-hearted. And do you know what this teaches us? What it teaches us is that the sorrows of life and the anxieties of life can either soften your heart toward God or harden your heart toward God. When things are going tough in your life and you're struggling for breath and it feels like the waves are crashing over you, it's either going to push you toward God, those waves, or they're going to send you out to sea far away from God. That is to say, your trials in life will either make you more receptive to God or more resistant to God. And this is a pretty simple way to explain it. The same sun that bakes down on wax and melts it shines down on clay and hardens it, makes it rock hard. Same sun, same heat, same light, it melts one. It hardens another. And I just want to say to you, friend, if you're going through your own baking heat this morning, the sun is baking you right now, God is giving you this choice right now. Are you going to melt and get softer toward me and toward what I'm trying to do in your life? Or are you going to get harder and more stubborn and more unbelieving? These disciples needed a wake-up call. Because what caused them not to listen to those eyewitnesses was their own unbelief and their own hardness of heart. Let's make sure that we're responding the right way to the challenges that God brings up into our life. Well, let's look at this from the perspective of the eyewitnesses. How do you think Mary felt when she heard that Jesus showed up and said, you know, you should have listened to Mary. You should have believed her. I did appear to her. I think this is so like Jesus to showing up and confirming the testimony of one of his people. And you know, friends, when you go out from this church to be a testimony, to be a witness that you've met Jesus and that you know him, do you know there are going to be people that don't believe you? There, there have been people, certainly, who don't believe you. But you know what? Sometimes Jesus shows up and he confirms your testimony. And that's ultimately what we're praying for. God, show up here and make Jesus real to this person who I'm trying to share the good news of what I have experienced 
in my own life. But I close with this. Because ultimately Mark is trying to communicate something here. He's trying to communicate that those first disciples weren't ready to receive that Jesus had been resurrected. You say, why is that important? Well, it's pretty important for this reason. Do you know what some people would say when they hear the news that Jesus was resurrected from the dead? They'd say, well, that's not true. That's because those early disciples just really wanted him to be resurrected. They were, they were expecting him to be resurrected. And so when he didn't, they just had to make up a story. They, or, or maybe they just had a hallucination. Maybe they saw something and they just really wanted to believe it was Jesus. And, and so they did. The gospel takes away that argument. Because it says the very first ones who were his closest friends were the ones who didn't believe that he had been resurrected until they saw him with their own eyes. I hope that strengthens your faith or perhaps challenges your unbelief. If Jesus' closest friends were the ones who weren't ready to accept that he, he had been resurrected. But I think ultimately it leads to one more thing and one more challenge for every one of us this morning. It's this. What will you do with the testimony of the eyewitnesses? What will you do with the witness of Mary Magdalene who stands, if you will, in a court of law and says, I saw Jesus with my own eyes. What will you do with the two on the road to Emmaus who said, I saw him. What will you do with the more than 500 people who saw him at one time and in the AD 60s, most of them were still alive and willing to testify that they had seen him with their own eyes. What are you going to do with the eyewitness testimony of Peter who said, I saw Jesus and was willing to die for that? What are you going to do with the eyewitness testimony of James and of John and of Paul and of all these others of the early church who were willing to give their life for the truth of their eyewitness testimony that Jesus was alive? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to believe it? Or like those hard-hearted disciples, are you going to say, no, I need to see it with my own eyes first. But Jesus shows up to those hard-hearted disciples and says, boys, you should have believed. And I'd like to close just by bringing to our minds the wonderful example of doubting Thomas. A man who said, I'm not going to believe unless I see it and unless I touch it. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 20 to Thomas. He says, reach here, reach hither your finger and behold my hands. And reach hither your hand and thrust it into my side. See my scar. And be not faithless but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Now fully believing. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 29. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. I say to you this morning, friends, all those of you who have never seen Jesus with these eyes, and nonetheless in reliance on the witness testimony of those who saw him and on the spiritual reality of Jesus Christ communicated to you, you believe. Jesus says to you, 
a blessing. Let's pray.